Now remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also the sermon text from John chapter 4. Again, give, pay close attention to the gospel of God. Jesus said to her, the Samaritan woman at the well, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where the one, where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please, through your spirit, bless the reading preaching and the hearing of your word in this hour. We ask for your favor in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Before I get started, just a reminder that those of you who are in a small group should receive an email right after church with a PDF and a Word document of the questions, the homework. So check your inbox. If you don't receive it, then you'll need to reach out to me. We're going to also try to put it on the Internet, on the website, so that if you go to listen to the sermon, there's a link close by that you can click to download the PDF or the Word document with the study guide, the study questions in it. The Samaritan woman's problem is that she is disoriented and confused. Her heart is disoriented and it needs to be reoriented to God and by God. Her affections need to be reoriented. Her worship needs to be reoriented. When people are in a spiritual slumber, when they're spiritually dead... Sometimes the only way to wake them up is to say something or to do something that will shock them or maybe even offend them. Sometimes God has to startle us or scandalize us or upset us 
or make us uncomfortable so that we will wake up and see the truth of our sin and our need to repent of it. Jesus shocks and even offends, scandalizes the woman at the well. He calls her out on her sexual impurity. He calls her out on her false doctrine and false worship. He confronts her about her sin. And the affections of this woman, the the loves of this woman, the heart of this woman is rooted in sin and self. Her worship is grounded in false teaching and sectarian tradition. She is dead spiritually and she does not know the truth. But when she meets Jesus, he confronts her with her sin and he calls her to faith and to worship, true worship. He he comes to her as the truth incarnate. Jesus is the truth made flesh. And he comes to this woman as her prophet, as her savior, as her Messiah or Christ. And each one of us needs Jesus to do to us and for us what he does for this nameless Samaritan woman. We need him to do it on a continual basis, not just once, not just at the beginning of our spiritual journey. We have sins that need to be confronted with the truth. We have wayward hearts that need to be called to repentance and faith and true worship. We constantly need Jesus to come to us and meet with us as the Messiah, who is both fully man and the great I am. Which is how he identifies himself at the end of this passage. We'll see that in a few minutes. And we don't just need Jesus to come to us once. We don't just need him to confront our sins one time in our lives. We don't just need him to call us to faith, repentance, and true worship once. No, we need Jesus to continually confront us and convict us and call us and come to us. We need him to uphold our faith that he has given to us all the way to the end. We need him to teach us how to be true worshipers. Which is who we are and who we will be forever. The father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth eternally. And he's going to show us how to do that more and more eternally. Now, before we jump into verse 16, we need to remember where we are in the story. We're jumping into the middle here this week, continuing where we've been in previous weeks. At the beginning of John 4, Jesus determined to leave Judea, which is in the south of Israel, and to go north to Galilee, which is at the top, the northernmost part of Israel. Now, he, he could have gone around Samaria, he could have gone East, see that this way, east to the Jordan River and, and skirted the Jordan River and, and Israel and then come up to Galilee that way and skipped Samaria in the middle between Galilee and Judea. But he didn't. That's what most Jews did because he needed to meet this Samaritan fornicator. 
He didn't want to avoid this. So he passes through Samaria. Now, when you read this story, it's important to remember the historical background, who the Samaritans were. In about 720 B.C., the Assyrian army exiled many of the Israelites living in northern Israel, where Samaria was. They they carried off all the chiefs and nobles, many others. And then the Assyrians imported people from other parts of the empire into northern Israel. And the Israelites intermarried with these imported Gentiles. The descendants of these inter-ethnic marriages were called Samaritans from Samaria. And the Samaritans, you see, were not pure Jews. And the Jews looked down on them for this. Eventually, the Samaritans built their own temple. They created their own central place of worship on Mount Gerizim. Not only that, they they also rejected most of the Old Testament as God's word. The only scriptures that the Samaritans accepted were the first five books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, which are the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. But even there, they had their own corrupted versions, a version of the, these first five books. They had intentionally changed some parts to support their theology, to support their particular view of worship. In, in particular, worshiping at Mount Gerizim instead of in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And these theological and ethnic differences became a source of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were looked down upon, the Samaritans were as half-breed heretics. And the mutual hatred is why the Jews would skirt around Samaria when they needed to go from Judea to Galilee or from Galilee down to Judea. But in John 4, Jesus walks right into the middle of this hostility to a famous place, a sacred place. Why? Why did he do this? Because he had an appointment with one of these wretched half-breed Samaritans. And not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And not just a Samaritan woman, but an adulterous, fornicating Samaritan woman. In verse 7, the woman that Jesus wanted to meet and save, comes to the well and he asks her for a drink. Everything Jesus does, everything he says, is meant to drive the conversation to a, to a specific place. He's going somewhere with it. He's not interested primarily in getting a drink from this woman. No doubt he was thirsty. He could have used a drink. But he mainly wants to create an opportunity to talk with her about the living water That can save her soul. We never see him actually get the drink. He has other priorities. As Jesus expected, the woman replies in verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so Jesus gets right to the point in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, 
And you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you only knew who I am and what I can give you, what I have to offer you, you would have you'd be asking me for the drink and I would be giving you the water of everlasting life. And then in verses 13 and 14, Jesus tells the woman more about this water that he's talking about. She's obviously confused. Whoever drinks of this water, the well, Jacob's well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. And the water that I shall give to him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Verse 13 is what you tell someone, or better, what you tell yourself when the world and your flesh and the devil are telling you that something other than Jesus in his spirit can quench your thirst. Whatever that something is, it could be a sin like drunkenness or pornography or worldly entertainment or selfishness. Or it could be something good that you've turned into an idol like your career or your reputation or your family or your health. Whatever it is that you are putting before Jesus, before his kingdom, will never quench your thirst because it can't quench your thirst. If you keep drinking that water, if you keep making it your primary water source, keep going to that well, then Jesus promises, he guarantees in verse 13 that you will thirst again. In other words, you're going to always be thirsty. You'll thirst for eternity. Only the living water that Jesus gives can deeply and thoroughly and eternally satisfy. And the way you get that water is by asking for it, by seeking it with all your heart. That's what Jesus says in verse 10. When when you ask him for it, he gives it to you. When you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you'll always find it if you're truly seeking it. You're truly asking for it. Living water flows in and through those who ask and seek and knock for it. When your heart is after God. The water Jesus gives, which is the Holy Spirit, becomes in you a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, as verse 14 says. And then in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir. Give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. See, the woman still doesn't get it, does she? She she still doesn't know who Jesus is, and she still doesn't understand what he's actually offering her. She's still not asking for the living water. She, she thinks somehow that Jesus is talking about physical thirst, Yeah, give me some of this miracle water that you're talking about that will keep me from having to come to this well again. She's still blind. She's still dead. So Jesus is going to have to wake her up from her spiritual slumber. And that brings us to our passage today, verse 16. 
to the first point on your outline. Jesus is the prophet who confronts us with the truth. Let's look at verses 16 and 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, why does this, why does Jesus tell this woman to go get her husband? He knows the situation. He knows her. So why does he do this? Why does he ask her this question? And in fact, if, if you back up, if you're reading this passage straight through, verse 16 is a little jarring. It's hard to see maybe how verse 16 continues the flow of the conversation. In verse 15, the woman requests the water. How is go get your husband in verse 16, a fitting response to this woman. Well, the problem that Jesus perceives is that in verse 15, the woman makes it clear that she doesn't get it. She doesn't know who Jesus is. She doesn't know what she should be asking for. She's not asking for the living water that springs up into everlasting life. So Jesus has to wake her up by confronting her sin and exposing her need for a savior. He knows she does not have a husband. He knows the truth, even though she's trying to conceal it from him. With maybe what. Some might call a white lie, right? He knows everything about her. He knows what is in every person. He knows she is deceiving him. We learned at the end of chapter 2 that he knows the heart of man. So he can read her heart. He can read her thoughts. And he plans to expose her sins and bring them to the light of her own conscience. You see, conviction of sin, which is what is beginning here in this story. Conviction of sin is the great foundational work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people, those who will become believers or those who are already believers. It's the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, the foundational work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers as well. If you've ever grown in godliness, it happened because the Holy Spirit first confronted you about your shortcoming, your sin, your failure, and convicted you to repent and to walk in the light instead of darkness. Conviction of sin is the great work, the the beginning of the great work of the Spirit in a person's life. And it's a work that ends, when it's reached its completion, its fulfillment, it ends in the assurance of faith to those who respond With humility and repentance and true worship. So Jesus intentionally exposes her sin. He invades her space because he loves her. He wants to move in to her inner life. She she wants to talk about external matters as we're about to see. But Jesus is forcing her to deal with what is inside her. 
and what is not inside of her. He, he, he needs he wants to crack her open so that he can pour living water into the empty cavern of her heart. The living water he has offered her is for her inner person. It's not water that you drink with your mouth. Physically, it's water that you drink with your soul, with your heart. It's water that goes into the deep and spacious cavern of your inner being. A cavern that only God can fill. A cavern that stays empty until God fills it with living water. Every human heart has a huge, gigantic cavern that longs to be filled with God's living water, whether they know it or not. When you try to fill it with the waters of this world, and there are plenty, these waters immediately evaporate. Blaise Pascal said that the cravings and longings of every human heart are an infinite abyss. And no matter how many things you put into this abyss in your attempt to fill it up and satisfy it, it remains infinitely empty. Man tries in vain, Pascal wrote, to fill this abyss with everything around him. But nothing works and no one can help. Pascal goes on to say that this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. End quote. St. Augustine put it this way in one of his prayers. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. See, the restless human heart will try to find rest and satisfaction in everything but God. Maybe you've tried to quench your thirst by moving to a new into a new house or moving to a new state. Maybe you thought your new career or your new marriage would bring you rest. Maybe you thought having a new hairdo or a new wardrobe or a new business venture or a better income would fill the cavernous space in your heart. Maybe you thought sleeping around or living like the world would satisfy your soul. Where are you trying to find rest other than God? Where are you trying to what are you trying to fill the abyss with? What is blocking God's living water from flowing in you and through you and out of you? Is the water of the Holy Spirit barely trickling into your cavern? Are you satisfied with this or do you want it to become in you a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, as verse 14 said? Jesus knew exactly which wells the Samaritan woman had been drinking from. He knew which waters she had been trying to fill her cavern with. He knew which sins needed to be confronted and exposed. So he spoke into her life 
like a prophet. He asked her prophetically questions. He asked her prophetically penetrating questions that forced her to come face to face with her hard and dark heart. And I want everyone to pay attention to this. If you want to grow as a Christian, you must find ways to come face to face with the, the dark places that are lingering in your heart. If you want God's living water to become in you an ever increasing fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, you must intentionally put yourself in situations where your sin will be confronted and exposed. You must avoid building walls around you with the people around you so that you are safe. This is one of the reasons we have small groups, that we're starting small groups at our church and why others have, even before this, been meeting in some way in smaller groups and smaller communities. God can and does accomplish certain things in us, in you, when you come to church on Sunday and hear the word read and preached. But he accomplishes other important things when you meet in smaller communities to pray for each other and to speak into one another's lives. You, you do need a preacher who will stand up and prophetically proclaim the truth to you. God can and does use that to break open your heart so that he can pour that living water into your cavern. But you also need brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking with you and praying with you and pointing you to Scripture, encouraging you, challenging you, speaking prophetically to you. People who are not afraid to ask you pointed questions and Confront specific sins. You need to put yourself around people who love you enough to say to you, go call your husband. You need people who want to see you grow and whose goal is to help you remove the obstacles in your own heart that are preventing God's living water from becoming in you that overflowing fountain. This is what our small groups are for. Now, some of you avoid what I'm talking about at all cost. Some of you are languishing in your walk with Christ because you don't spend time with him and you don't spend time or much time with his people. And when you do spend time with others, things stay on the surface. Maybe you've made sure to stay away from everything and everyone that threatens your, your comfort and your pride. Created a safe place for yourself. If you've done that, then you're shutting yourself off from the truth. But 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 you better be careful because you you may not be as safe as you think. If you belong to Jesus, He won't let you stay safe forever. He will confront your sin and expose it so that you can repent and grow, so that He can. Begin to fill the, the, the deep cavern in your heart with his satisfying water, his living water. And so that river 
so that the rivers of life will begin flowing out of you abundantly with increasing volume and power. In verses 20 to 24, we see that Jesus is the Savior who calls us to the truth. The woman continues in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship or who we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. and Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice how the woman shifts gears in verse 20. Verse 19, she's forced to acknowledge that Jesus is a prophet because he knew all about her life and her sin. She doesn't want to talk about her sin. so She tries to take the conversation in a different direction in verse 20. She'd rather have a debate about worship, which poses much less of a threat to her life of sin. So she changes the subject. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. And since we're on this top, since we're talking about my sexual immorality, what's your view on where we should worship? Maybe you can see yourself in this woman. She refuses to keep the focus on the truth, on sin, on the gospel, what Jesus is offering, who he is. She doesn't even see it. She doesn't know it. She'd rather have a theological debate. Really, she'd rather do anything than talk about her spiritual dryness. And what's interesting is that Jesus engages her on this topic. It's not always the wisest thing for us to do when we're in this kind of a to go where the conversation goes necessarily. But Jesus does it in a wise way that brings it back around to the important truths that he's getting at. So he engages her, but he doesn't argue the way that she might have expected. Now, he does make it the case in verse 22 for worshiping God in Jerusalem instead of on Mount Gerizim. That's what she would expect him to say. But, but his main point, which he states at the outset in verse 21 and then comes back to it at verse 23 is that the long-standing debate between Gerizim and Jerusalem is only marginally important in the grand scheme of things since both of these places will soon be obsolete. Believe me, Jesus says, verse 21, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father on neither of these mountains. That's the most important point. So if there's not going to be a mountain to worship on, where will true worshipers worship God? Where's the new location? Where will the central place of worship be for true worshipers? Well, verse 23 gives the answer. The true worshipers soon will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's the location. The new location is in spirit and truth. We've already 
we heard a hint of this. This is not the first time we've seen this in John's gospel. We heard a hint of it back in John chapter 2, you remember. In John 2, verses 19 to 22, Jesus indicated that his body, his physical body, is the new temple. You can flip back a page or two and look at John 2, 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When Jesus tells the woman that an hour is coming, he's referring to the hour of his death and his resurrection and ascension, which will happen to his body, which will happen to the new temple. It's the hour of his glorification by the Father. When Jesus talks about being glorified by the Father, he's talking about the death, resurrection, ascension event. It happened in a, in a matter of about 50 days. When this hour comes, there will be a new place of worship. There will be a new temple. And the temple in Jerusalem will be as obsolete as the temple in Gerizim. The new place of worship is in the Holy Spirit and in truth, which is another way of saying in the risen and glorified Lord Jesus, who is the new and final and everlasting temple. Jesus is the temple to replace all temples. Central place of worship is now the crucified and resurrected body of Jesus. Jesus is where the presence of God resides, dwells in all of its fullness. Colossians 2.19 says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. True worship, you see, is God is Christ-centered and cross-centered. True worship is centered on the Savior and on His saving work at the cross. When Jesus says to worship in spirit, he's not referring to the human spirit, saying that our worship is done primarily by our invisible, invisible part of ourselves, our, our spirit. It's not saying that it happens in your spirit rather than in your mind or your body, something like that. The human spirit is not the focus here. The focus is on God's spirit. The Holy Spirit. Worship in in the Spirit is worship that is dynamically animated by God's Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't just say, in Spirit, capital S Spirit. He says, in Spirit and Truth. In capital S Spirit and Truth. Now, if the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, who does the truth refer to? Who does that remind us of? Who is the truth in John's gospel? Right. Jesus. Yeah, you can answer those questions. Jesus. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one worships truly the Father except through the truth, who is Jesus. 
Worship takes place in spirit and truth. In the Holy Spirit and in Jesus. Christ and the spirit of Christ are the new location for true worship. Do you see what's going on here? Christ, embodiment of truth, and his spirit, the Holy Spirit, are the new location of true worship. And such worship is not merely spiritual or disembodied. I want to drive this point home. Worship done through the crucified and risen body of Christ in spirit and truth is only rightly done in the local body of Christ, in the local church. Or a better way to say it, if you're not doing it there first, then you are never doing it. The local church does not replace a mountain or a temple. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit replace all the mountains and temples. But the local church is the main place where this worship in spirit and truth happens. The church is the real body of Christ. It is the place of the real presence of the Holy Spirit who communicates to us the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. The church is made up of these true worshipers whom the Father is seeking and finding and calling, convicting, drawing. Jesus is not calling us to worship in abstraction. He's calling us to worship in spirit and truth in the local church. It starts there and then flows out to other areas. To the smaller communities, to your family, to your own personal relationship with God. Final point on your outline is that Jesus is the Christ who comes to us as the truth. Listen to verses 25 and 26 again. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The most important part of what I just read there is at the very end of verse 26. I who speak to you am he. Now, if you have a New King James Version or a New American Standard Bible, probably some others that are really literal and that italicize the words that are not in the Greek but that are necessary in the English translation for us to understand it. If you have one of those kinds of Bibles, you will notice that the word he at the end of verse 26 is in italics. This is because the pronoun he is not actually in the Greek. The Greek literally reads, I am who speaks to you. Jesus said to her, I am who speaks to you. Now that's obviously that's Awkward, right? That's it, it's even unusual and awkward in the Greek. The translators feel the need to smooth it out for fear maybe that the average English reader will think Jesus is talking nonsense and not know what's they won't know what's going on. But if Jesus is not talking nonsense, what's he doing? Well, he's identifying himself as the God who spoke to Moses. On Mount Sinai. 
In Exodus 3.14, God tells Moses that his name is what? I am. I am. I am who I am is the longer version, but I am. And now Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman that he is I am. Jesus is I am in the flesh. Remember this woman's scriptures, the first five books of Moses. She's, she's going to hear this a very specific way because she knows Exodus 3, 14. He is, I am in the flesh. The man who is standing before this woman is both the promised Messiah, the Christ who is to come, and the God who made her, who formed her. He is her prophet and her savior and her Messiah and her God. All in one person, standing before her, having a conversation with her. He has confronted her with the truth. He has called her to the truth. And he has come to her as the truth. As the truth incarnate. As the eternal truth made man. Through the work of his son, the father has sought out and he has found another person who will become a true worshiper. A woman who will worship him, the father, forever in the spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, please continue to do your good work in each of us that you have called. Continue to confront us and to convict us and to call us. Continue to come to us in our worship. Continue to walk with us, to be with us as you promised all the way to the end of the age. Continue to make us true worshipers of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.